thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, and their presentation of a 20-year survey of the work of artist Robin O'Neill. Organized by the Modern's associate curator, Allison Hurst, the exhibition Robin O'Neill, We the Masses, explores the artist's fruitful career from 2000 to the present, and includes major multi-panel drawings, signature works of graphite on paper, collages, and the animated film We the Masses. This in-depth presentation is the first to examine O'Neill's formal and conceptual developments over the past two decades. The show is on view in Fort Worth through February 9th, 2020. Also on view at the museum is Focus Martin Gutierrez, presenting photographs from the artist's Indigenous Woman series. Gutierrez's photographs and videos explore gender, race, class, and sexuality, as well as conventional ideas of beauty and identity as a social construct through January 12th, 2020. For more information, visit themodern.org. Hello, and welcome to Glass Tires Art Dirt Podcast. We do this every two weeks. We talk about topical art topics. I am Christina Reese. And I'm Brandon Zeck. And this week, what we're going to cover is, what we're going to do is we're going to touch on a couple of articles, both of them written by Jason Farrago in the New York Times. We're going to talk about a topic that's interesting to us. What he did is he wrote uh, two articles last week. One is called, It's Time to Take Down the Mona Lisa. And one was about a Kusama uh, exhibition that's going up at David's Werner. And essentially... They're the same article, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of are the same article. The theme is, are these mega hits of art, whether they're older pieces like the Mona Lisa or newer work as Kusama's is, you know, the huge crowds that descend on these exhibitions, does it make it worth it? No work of art should make people miserable was sort of his takeaway. And uh, because Brandon and I go around a lot and do a lot of traveling and see a lot of shows and deal with a lot of crowds, and I'm sure many, many of our listeners do exactly the same, we thought that we would touch on this and talk a little bit about what, uh, what it's like these days. And it seems like a huge trend, of course, that more and more people are traveling. World travel is much more popular than ever before. People are going out and seeking experiences uh, more than they are maybe buying in objects. And uh, what's happened is that crowds in uh, big hit, mega hit art exhibitions, are, it's just getting overwhelming. I feel like in a way I have to preface this conversation with the fact that, Christina, you and I don't really have to deal with crowds like the extent of what we're going to be talking about um, mm. on this podcast. And that's because of a few factors that we'll get into later on in this conversation. But also uh, the fact that these crowds exist, I kind of, in a way, I have to give credit to and love because it means people are going and seeing these things for whatever reason, because they want a selfie or because they do want to see it in person or because they want to seem like they're world travelers. Th whatever reason kind of aside, it is great that people are going out and experiencing all these things, but it just causes many undue problems on everyone. You know, it's kind of a you can't make everyone happy situation. 
yeah, art art has really been folded into this whole uh, this trend of the of the spectacle or the experience, and so it's not just art uh, and art objects that are kind of suffering under the crowds. I mean, Mount Everest, for instance, is too crowded now. There have been a lot of stories about that. It's kind of sad and sickening to learn that there are actually lines, like long lines, at the top of Everest in order to get right to the very, very tippy top and take a picture. Which is dangerous, unlike these museum lines, because of the lack of oxygen that high up. But I, I digress. Yeah. Yeah, there's that. Also, uh, Rome, uh, the city of Rome has now uh, made it illegal to sit on the Spanish steps, for instance. Um, There are a lot of stories about, say, when there are big uh, mega blooms, big flower explosions, seasonal flower explosions, that so many Instagrammers and influencers descend on these these um, sort of pastoral places and trample them basically to death. Um, I will say that just in the last few years, I personally, um, even being an editor in an art magazine, I have had to stand in horrible lines and deal with horrible crowds at the Hermitage in Russia or the Summer Palace in Russia. I went to the Sistine Chapel a couple of years ago with the crowds. Um, so I know how crowded it is now, and I know how crowded it is now compared to what it was, say, 20 years ago. When we were talking about doing this conversation, you asked if I had ever seen the Mona Lisa. Uh, I saw the Mona Lisa as a teenager in the 80s, and I saw the Mona Lisa at the Louvre in about, I think it was about the year 2000. I have not been to the Louvre since 2000. Have you? No, I actually, you know, one of these things, I haven't ever seen the Mona Lisa in person and I frankly have no desire to ever see the Mona Lisa just because I don't know I've seen so many images of it you know we th- this goes against the conversation that we always have about you have to see art in person uh, to fully understand it no matter how much you've seen it online or in digital mm. images or in books but the fact that you can't even get close to the Mona Lisa at this point like it's behind it's not only in glass behind a frame but it's behind another sheet of like protective glass and then there's a barrier in front of it so you can't get more than I think you can't get closer than 10 or 15 feet to it and it's a small work of art people think of it as being you know it kind of looms large in our consciousness but it's a small painting it's like two and a half feet tall I think so you know, I don't really have any desire to see it because I don't think I'm going to get anything out of seeing it in person versus what I get from it, you know, seeing it on the internet. And this is one of the very few times that I would actually say that sentence. Right. And, and, and the New York Times piece, the Jason Farrago piece is, you know, he's arguing for removing uh, Mona Lisa from the Louvre, putting it in its own pavilion, possibly doing something even like having a moving walkway so that people will sort of glide past it a little bit closer than they can get right now. And they'll have a couple of minutes with it. This is kind of like, uh, this is the idea with the Kusama stuff. So Zwerner, I was in New York uh, December of 2017, walking around on Chelsea. That's when the first big Zwerner show happened. Uh, the first big Zwerner Kusama show happened. And right, the lines, right. I, I read multiple stories at that time about those lines because it was cold and people were it waiting was. outside the gallery in like three or four hour lines. 
Oh, I saw it. So I rounded the corner on that street and I came face to face with this gigantic line that was almost around the block. And those are big New York blocks there in Chelsea. Uh, and I was like, what the heck is this? And what I, when I looked at the crowd, all bundled up in their winter gear because it was really, really cold, I was thinking, what are they standing in line for? We're in Chelsea. It's got to be art. But what the heck is it? And uh, when I walked up toward the front of the line and looked and saw that it was Werner, of course it's Werner, and then it was Kusama, I was like, oh my gosh, of course it's a Kusama show. You know, the it wasn't even an Infinity Room, I don't believe. What was the show? They might have been was... Infinity Rooms, actually. Uh, I think they might have been it, Infinity Rooms. Oh, uh, maybe, maybe so, but it's happening again now, I believe. And, you know... Um, the the whole idea of that you have exactly one minute inside the infinity room and that you have to stand in there with two or three other people, probably strangers, and the whole idea is that you take your phone out and you soak up as much as you can on your cell phone and then you exit. You know, I don't even know what to say about this in terms of what it means to experience art in this rushed, crowded um, it's, it's such a, God, it's, there's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of stress. I went to see the Rembrandt show at the National Gallery in London. It was, mm. uh, it was either 2014 or 2015. And that's the first time that I went to a show that was ticketed, pre-ticketed, and that they were letting in people in specific groups. It was kind of toward the beginning of the exhibition, and I was with another artist, a really good painter in London, actually, and she's not used to having to deal with these kind of crowds either. But my gosh, even though it was ticketed, and even though they were only letting in groups at a time, it was so insanely crowded and you know Rembrandt I mean Rembrandt my god you want to get up as close as you can to these pieces they're so incredible but I gotta say that the crowds really made it a very stressful and distracting and distracted uh, experience for me well you know the whole ticketing aspect of this of course is something that I mean some of these museums have to do it's something that um, like the Museum of Fine Arts Houston when they had their Kusama show they had ticketed entry and you know timed entry and that's something that's happened for more and more exhibitions. But if it's a show where it's ticketed and timed entry because it's going to be that crowded, you know basically what's happening is that they are selling the capacity of the gallery and the capacity mm-hmm. of the gallery is sold out and there are people on standby, which is just kind of in, I mean, it makes sense from a business perspective and, and from a perspective of getting as many people in to see it so that people can see it. But at the same time, it's almost kind of a mind blowing way to think of engaging with um, an exhibition or a show or kind of, it's like, it, it's like if you had a, a, a gala or a party or something and the capacity was 500 and you had 500 people in that room, it wouldn't be fun for anyone. There's a capacity and the capacity is the max. It's not what it should be. (laughs) Yeah, it's the max. And this is really not exactly how the artists probably wanted their art to be experienced either. And, you know, as sort of purists, if you want to call us purists, it it can be pretty difficult when you're, those of us who go around and look at art all the time and often are standing in galleries in the middle of a Wednesday afternoon, or, you know, we go to a museum for, say, a press preview, we get very lucky. You know, we get to see this art um, almost by ourselves or with just a couple of other people who actually really, really love the work. And the crowds can be quite jarring. Now, have did you go see the Sistine Chapel? Were you, did you do that recently? Yeah, so I've, uh, I've seen things throughout Italy. And I was kind of on this trip where it was semi-planned so like i didn't have to deal with you know buying tickets to the uffizi which is which is its own 
thing. Like I, I know multiple people who have tried to go to the Uffizi in uh, Florence and mm-hmm. just been completely unable to go because they've showed up the day of thought they could get a ticket because that's what you do at a museum and just have had the museum be completely packed and sold out. Um, right. I, I did see the Sistine chapel uh, when I was in Rome. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's a <laughs> stockyard. It is Man. a stockyard. I know. I was there too. I was there in 2017. And you know what? We had hired, uh, we were there kind of um, as guests of a gallery, and they had hired a guide for us who was even able to kind of, through her own connections, she was a historian, she she was able to kind of jump through some of the hoops to get us a little a little bit through it a little bit more quickly but still i mean there are uh 20,000 people a day see the Sistine Chapel and i felt that i mean i could feel it i saw it i was in the middle of it it's exhausting um that's the other thing is that it's exhausting um it's physically and mentally and emotionally exhausting to experience that kind of work when you're surrounded by so many people who are jostling for any space to just stand still and look up i gotta say that the hermitage museum in russia and the summer palace in russia were so insanely crowded that you know by the end of the day i felt like i was getting physically ill Mm -hmm. and um i didn't you know it's just it's just not ideal well the thing is also these institutions know that this is the case like for example Mm. the the sistine chapel um has a kind of a a sistine chapel without the crowds package that's of course more expensive and other tour companies have like the sistine chapel after dark package that you know are like 75 dollars, and you can see it without well Without the crowds is what they say. At the same time, there are probably a couple of these groups. So it's just kind of with what a normal, acceptable crowd would be. But it feels right. empty, probably, comparison to how we see them just as tourists. I mean, it's kind of like it's kind of like booking a flight. You know, are you going to book first class, business class, or coach, which is what I call steerage? I mean, the idea that you have to pay that much more just to see art in a way that it's meant to be experienced is really it's really kind of something. And again, it's a trend that I see. Uh, has gotten so much worse really in just the past 10 years, but I'd say the last 20 years, certainly as cell phones and social media have taken over, it's all gotten much, much, much worse. I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what my takeaway of this is other than, because I don't want to tell anyone to not go look at art and to not go see these things that they want to see. This week's Art Dirt is sponsored in part by the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth and their presentation of a 20-year survey of the work of artist Robin O'Neill. Organized by the Modern's associate curator, Allison Hurst, the exhibition Robin O'Neill, We the Masses, explores the artist's fruitful career from 2000 to the present and includes major multi-panel drawings, signature works of graphite on paper, collages, and the animated film We the Masses. This in-depth presentation is the first to examine O'Neill's formal and conceptual developments over the past two decades. Also now in view at the museum is Focus Martin Gutierrez, presenting photographs from the artist's Indigenous Woman series. Gutierrez's photographs and videos explore gender, race, class, and sexuality, as well as conventional ideas of beauty and identity as a social construct, through January 12, 2020. For more information, visit themodern.org. 
This week's podcast is also sponsored by the University of Houston School of Art and their MFA and MA in Art History programs. UH offers the best MFA option in Houston and promises its students a low-cost, high-reward arts education. The program offers generous scholarships and teaching options to graduate students, meaning you graduate with less debt. And also in the fall of 2020, the school is opening a new home for its MFA program, featuring new studios, sculpture facilities, exhibition spaces, and more. And this goes without mentioning, of course, UH's amazing roster of faculty. Visit uh.edu slash kgmca slash art for more information and to get your application started. The deadline to apply is January 15th, 2020. Christina, what we were talking about was the fact that this is kind of a uniquely, in some ways, European problem because a lot of the things that have this kind of weight behind them are things that are the hallmark pieces of art history or the pieces rather that have come kind of into the public mind and the public eye, like the Mm -hmm. Sistine Chapel, like the Mona Lisa. I mean, kind Mm -hmm. of our closest comparison other than a special exhibition Kusama type thing in the U.S. Mm -hmm. is like, I don't know, Starry Night. But at the same time, if you go to MoMA, you can you can get close to Starry Night and you can kind of have a private moment in a way with Starry Night because it's not there's not a stanchion uh, that people are standing behind zigzagged lined up waiting to see it. Right, right. There are occasionally these blockbuster shows, however. You know, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in um, in 2017 did a Michelangelo drawing show. And I was with a friend who knew someone who worked there, and we were able to get in first thing in the morning, or a little bit earlier than it even opened, which I know is very, very special. But the guy who worked there who had us come in early... He said that by 11 a.m. that it would be so crowded that it would be very difficult to really get Mm. up close to and see and enjoy the work. And, you know, these things still these things do happen in the U.S., probably almost uh, almost exclusively in New York at a place like the Met. But we'll see. That's also a unique case because the Met or even, you know, even the Louvre, you can go to these places and you can go see the greatest hits or all the things that, you know, everyone wants to see. Like the Louvre says that 30,000 people come through a day and a lot of those are there for the Mona Lisa, but Mm -hmm. you can go to parts of these museums, especially this has happened to me multiple times in the Met where, you know, it's the busiest day it's midday or early morning on a Saturday and the lobby is jam packed, but you can go to this random wing and be all alone. Oh yeah. I mean, which is a really special thing still. And you know, the Louvre, um, in one of these New York times articles, it said that the Louvre has 10.2 million visitors a year, or rather it did so in 2018, which was the highest attendance record of a museum. And it broke all these things. But the fact that you can still go to one of those museums, you know, one of these museums that has more attendance, in a year than the population of many countries Mm -hmm. and be alone in a room with some of these objects is a truly special thing yeah it is and 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 it kind of and again this was his piece farrago's piece was really about the mona lisa and Mm -hmm. was it worth it and in, in his rendition he was talking about you know just skip the mona lisa and just walk around the rest of the museum because there's so much to see and there aren't that many people looking at everything else is the mona lisa worth it um i think 
both of us, you and I are both kind of saying, yeah, probably not. It's probably not worth it, which is not to say that the painting itself is not a good painting. It's just the misery doesn't make it worthwhile. High resolution on a screen is probably going to get you as close to that piece as you could possibly get. Mm -hmm. And maybe in this case, it'll do. There's also kind of this, uh, there's a, there's a, a lot of conversation happening now, especially people who are kind of, you know, bougie chattering classes, people like us, including people like us who are talking about, you know, what does it mean that all this world travel and this kind of, uh, this incentive or this pressure to go out and have these experiences and document them. I mean, it's not that good for the climate. It's not good for the environment. It's not good for global, uh, you know, uh, health to just be descending in en masse in, in these in these various cities and places and uh, and sites. And again, it can really kind of give you a pretty degraded experience of something. And then adding to that with this conversation is this tremendous guilt. Um, I would feel guilty about going to visit Super Blooms in Southern California or, you know, out, out in the California desert if I saw, you know, 2,000 other people doing it. I would feel like such a chump, you know, and I would also feel irresponsible. Yeah, that is an interesting take on it because, I mean, do you think the people who were waiting in line, waiting in a 20 or 30 minute line to take a picture 10 feet, 15 feet in front of the Mona Lisa feel this? Because, you know, I mean, uh, we oh, might, no. like we're, you and I are definitely coming at this, you know, we're, we very much kind of acknowledge we are the art elite that'll, you know, that'll say, well, I would rather go see the, the really good painting directly opposite the Mona Lisa because it's a really good painting and I can actually engage with it and do all of that. Right. But I mean, people want to see the Mona Lisa. That's the whole reason that article was written in the first place. Like, People are traveling from all over the world to the Louvre and they go to the Louvre so they can see that one thing. It's kind of, it kind of goes, I, I would say that there are two sides to this. One is that there are going to be a, there's going to be a percentage of people in that super, super crowded room who really do want to see the painting. Um, they've taken art history classes. They're interested in painting. They're artists themselves and they're from all over the world. They're coming from all corners of the globe. And I hate it that they wouldn't be able to see it. I also think that about half the people in the room are really just there because I don't know, because that's it's, what you do. Yeah, it's popular. And when I was at the Hermitage, especially in summer palace in Russia, you know, none of us even, I didn't even necessarily know what the super special things were to concentrate on or focus on or gravitate toward everyone who was there. And there were thousands and thousands of people there. You know, we're all just being herded through by tour uh, tour operators who are just kind of doing their greatest hits spiel. And, uh, you know, I felt as much like, a, you know, cattle as anyone else who was there. The Mona Lisa is special because so many people already know something about it. But, you know, I, you know, I don't know what to, again, I don't know what to say. I don't have a real takeaway other than sort of uh, agreeing with Jason Farrago that maybe they just need to take it out of the Louvre so that the Louvre can continue to be the Louvre and a museum that's worth going to for all the rest of us who want to see everything else that's there and just get the Mona Lisa into her own pavilion uh, offsite. So I have a question kind of piggybacking on that of what are the things that you've seen that are, you know, the, the stereotypical things you have to see that have been worth it and not miserable making? Because I, I mean, not I can immediately, making. yeah, I can immediately think of one 
um, which you mentioned also, which is David, Michelangelo's David at the Academia. Yeah, I haven't seen David since I was a teenager. I have no idea how difficult it is to get to see him now. I'm sure it's horrible. Um, it was worth every, it was worth every second of it when I was, you know, 16 years old. I'm so glad I saw him. Um, I was in Florence. I I don't know at at this point, maybe it was, oh, seven or eight years ago. But I remember when I went, I don't remember, you know, I don't remember what day of the week it was. I don't remember really any details about it, but I remember that it wasn't horrible and there was time to engage. You know, there's also a scale issue here. Like the Mona Lisa is very small and even if it's hung kind of high, you still can't really engage with it. Whereas mm-hmm. David is huge and people think mm-hmm. it's life size, but it's much larger than life. So, you know, yeah. even if there are yeah. kind of a few people around it, you can still see it and can still do yeah. all that, et cetera, et cetera. But I remember that it wasn't horrible and people were actually engaging with the rest of the museum also. And it wasn't just like people taking a photo with David and leaving. Maybe I was there on a good day. Maybe I got lucky. Maybe it's changed in... 10 years, you know, who knows, but yeah, I, you know, for me, what's really special is going to a major museum like the Metropolitan or the Getty, um, or the National Gallery in London and, uh, and avoiding the big exhibition and just poking around the rest of the museum. I will, I will never regret going to see the Rembrandt show that was ticketed and horribly crowded. I'm very glad I got to see that much of his work in one place. Again, it was a degraded experience, but I'm glad that I saw it. But I'm after I saw that, I'm very happy to just poke around the rest of the museum because we both have some sense of art history. Um, you know, almost anything could be sort of a greatest hit in the mind of an art lover. Um, it just kind of depends on what turns your crank. I yeah, mean, well, one of my favorite experiences when I was in Italy, I've only ever once been to Italy, but when I was over there, um, I, I had some free time. As I said, it was almost kind of like a planned, we, we hit a lot of the greatest hits, which was great because kind of like you're saying, we almost had like, uh, we were a big group and we had like a guide that could just kind of find out things and get us into places and took care of everything. But, um, mm-hmm. we had some free time and I, I had noticed that we had walked by Santa Maria Novella in Florence mm-hmm. and from my art history knowledge, I just remembered that there was a, there was a painting by Masaccio in the church and, you know, right. we had some free time and I found my way back and just saw it. And it was, you know, there were two other people in the church and it was so unceremonious and it hadn't been cleaned in a long time. And it just kind of, it kind of looked crappy, but at the same time it was like, wow, this is, this is that thing that I had read about and had known about and, it seems like no one knows it's here. And those moments are really special. And one of the reasons, you know, I, I don't know about you, Christina, but I'm always a, a, a planner whenever I travel. Uh-huh. Um, be- yeah. Just because, because those moments sometimes can happen serendipitously, but sometimes you kind of have to make them happen and know that they're there so they can happen. Yeah, and the, and the good thing is that if you do a little bit of pre-planning and you do a little bit of reading ahead, you can set yourself up for these really nice moments. I, one thing, I, I mean, I don't have a whole lot of examples off the top of my head. I didn't realize you were going to ask me that question, but I will say that very recently I went to the DMA to see the Ragnar video and it was closed due to technical difficulties. And I was very disappointed because I still haven't seen the visitors, believe it or not. And, uh, so I decided to just look around the rest of the museum. We had, you and I had done a thing about our favorite artworks about snow and ice. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I named was the the Fox in the Snow by Corbet from 1860, and that it, it belongs to the DMA. I hadn't seen it in years, and I just decided to wander up into the galleries upstairs to just look and see about the, you know they had reinstalled the European galleries, mm-hmm. and I came face to face with my fox, and I w- I mean I started to cry. I was so excited. Mm-hmm. These are. These are the moments I sort of live for as an art person. Oh, yeah. There there are pieces at the Menil or at the MFAH that, you know, I, I saw once seven years ago and haven't been back out. And I know that when they are pulled back out and I'll finally see them again, I'll have the same type of interaction. Yes. Yeah. That's really special. And anyone, really, any listener, any person who likes art, they can do just a little bit of research ahead of time and figure out what they may be able to see if they... There was Charles Scheeler. There was all kinds of... There was some German expressionism upstairs. I mean, nobody turns me on more than Max Beckman. Max Beckman is like one of my gods. And there were some Max Beckman. It was up there upstairs in the DMA. And I was like... This makes this visit so worth it to me. I'm sorry I didn't get to see the visitors, but I did get to see this. And, you know, and to me that made the whole day a completely worthwhile day. I would say, you know, if I was going to give advice to anyone who's listening and thinking about going to Rome or thinking about going to St. Petersburg or thinking about going to Paris. Thinking about going to any of the typical art things that you would do if you travel to see them (laughs) right 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 and right now right now there's a whole lot of press about a da vinci show that's opening at the louvre the the big da vinci show it's going to be it's a big deal it's the it's the most uh as far as the curator is concerned it's the most difficult show that the louvre has ever had to put together i know some people who are planning on going i you know all i can say is good for you for going and brace yourselves because it's going to be really crowded uh adjust your expectations and then plan on going to see everything else that you can see in paris because it's amazing i don't know if we want to end with advice not that you and i are (laughs) not that you and i are travel agents but at the same time you and i have both traveled in new york here in texas like places to see art and to kind of have these sorts of trips and you know even if you're not a planner, take a second and plan because museums some days will be open late. And, you know, sometimes do some research on whether the nights that they're open late are typically their least crowded times or maybe sometimes it's their most crowded times. So you can Right, go to like either... MoMA on Friday night when it's free. It's really, really, really crowded. Yeah. Is the museum just open late or are they open late and free? Because that'll probably mm-hmm. inform what you're doing and how crowded... Yeah it will be at that time. And, you know, just these basic, these basic things that really only take granted, it is a luxury to be able to do any sort of research before you go somewhere. It's a luxury to be able to go somewhere, but taking even 30 minutes, like the morning of that you're planning on doing something, if you haven't planned out anything yet can so Mm -hmm. greatly benefit you whenever you try to, well, do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I guess I think, we will agree. You and I will both agree. I, I've seen the Mona Lisa twice. You haven't seen her. No desire. I'm going to say, yeah, don't bother. Anyone out there who's thinking about going to Paris to see the Da Vinci show, don't worry about going into the room where the Mona Lisa is. By, by the way, she's not in that show. They're keeping her in her spot. But um, They probably couldn't <laughs> manage to have her in that show. 
Yeah, they can't. the The capacity for the galleries where the Da Vinci Show is can't hold the capacity for the number of people who are there just to see the Mona Lisa. So they've decided to keep her separate from the rest of the. Let's. There's something kind of sad about that. Actually, that sort of makes me makes me sad. It but. really is. I mean, that's the whole idea. You know, taking it back to that article that we started on. Um, it's time to take down the Mona Lisa. There is a sadness about, well, maybe one way to do it and to mitigate the crowd and everything is to put her in her own building and then make people go Mm -hmm. in there. And it's just like, if it were this sort of uh, ostentatious, old 17th, 18th century way of doing an exhibition where there's a velvet curtain and there's just one artwork and they pull it back and women (laughs) in corsets faint because the artwork is so scandalous, I would be all (laughs) for that. Because that's amazing. Yeah. Let's go back to that. That's what that's what we need to start working toward. How can we start that trend? Yeah. But instead of that, you know, if that were a building, it'd be great. But instead of that, having just a building be for Mona Lisa because the crowd is so bad and it's so and it's going to be behind bulletproof glass and all that. It's just it's it's so sad. <laughs> it, it is, is so it's sad. Just... Yeah, and it's just, and it's absolutely not not the way any artwork should be experienced. We we can, with authority, say that. So yeah. Um, with that, however, uh, just keep in mind that we've got some really really good museums here in Texas, and they've got some really good artwork. So when you get a chance, go to the DMA, go to MFH, go to the Modern in Fort Worth, go to the Manil, of course, of course, go to the Blanton. The Blanton's got some great stuff up right now. I was just at the Blanton the week before before last um the mcnay uh sama man we've got a lot of stuff here so if you're thinking oh i'm gonna spend a fortune and get on a plane and fly to europe because i need to see some art um make sure that you get some stuff checked off your list here in the state of texas yeah and with that go see some art go see some art Thanks to our podcast sponsor, the University of Houston School of Art and their MFA and MA in Art History programs. UH offers the best MFA option in Houston and promises its students a low-cost, high-reward arts education. If you're interested in applying, the deadline is January 15th, 2020, and there are a few reasons you should apply. The program offers generous scholarships and teaching options to graduate students, meaning that you'll graduate with less debt. And also in the fall of 2020, the school's opening a new MFA program building featuring new studios, sculpture facilities, exhibition spaces, and much more. Also, in case you don't know, the school has an amazing roster of faculty. Visit uh.edu slash kgmca slash art for more information and to get your application started. <laughs>